Uh, if you would, turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. You know, last week we looked at the Word of God, the Scriptures, and this week we're going to look at what Paul wanted Timothy to do with these God-breathed Scriptures. And as we read, I want you to look at all the things that Timothy, or that Paul tells Timothy to do. Again, our text is 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. This is the Word of God. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the Word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound, sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come before you and thank you for this opportunity to hear from your word. Would you inspire us in the name of Jesus to fulfill our ministry? Show us what that means. Show us the content and character of the ministry you have for us. But Lord, this morning, speak to us. Open our eyes and our hearts to hear from you. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. There's a commercial where uh, it's a college graduation. Everybody's in a cap and gown, and the parents are there. And this one uh, college graduate is there, and he's happy, and the parents are excited for him, and they're like, what's next? Expecting him to tell them what job or career he's going to do. And he says, you know what, I'm just, I thought about it. I'm just going to skip right on to retirement. I think it's funny, yeah. Uh, and it's actually a commercial for dish detergent. So, you know, to skip rinsing so you can put it right in the dishwashers. <clears throat> Good luck with that, by the way. Um, but anyway, so it's, it's you, you expect him, you know, it's a time for action for him, but he's saying, I just want to rest and not do anything. You know, he's been trained, he's received all this work, and he's done all this work, and now he's just going to quit. Um, and, you know, in our text, it's time for Timothy to act as well. It, it, he doesn't get to go straight to heaven, as it were, uh, straight into retirement. It's time for Timothy to act. And we know that because Paul has nine imperatives in this text. That's, uh, you know, that's, that's some very grammarish things. That is nine commands. There are nine things that Paul says, go do that. It's time for Timothy to act, to get busy with the work of ministry. And Paul summarizes all of these with the last one, which is fulfill your ministry. That, that is sort of a summary of the whole thing. But Timothy can fulfill his ministry because he's been trained and ordained. He's been trained and ordained. Earlier in chapter 3, Paul says this, chapter 3, verse 10, 
You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions, and so forth. The idea is Timothy isn't coming to this without receiving any instruction. He's actually received some very practical instruction when he has worked with Paul for many years. And he also has been trained in that his parents and grandparents, his mother and grandmother specifically, have raised him in the faith. He knows the scriptures because they taught them to him. And then he also has access to the word of God, the God-breathed word we talked about last week, the scriptures. And so he has those three things. He's been trained. He, he has been equipped. But he's also been ordained. He's been formally uh, set aside for the work of ministry. And we see that in chapter 1, Paul has laid hands on Timothy. And so everything is in place. And it's a time for action. It's time for Timothy to act, to pursue, to fulfill his ministry. And Timothy is to do this only because God is the one who provides the ministry. Look at verse 1. Paul sets a very somber and serious tone. He says, I charge you in the presence of God in Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom. So Paul, Paul is saying, I want you to do all these things in light of the fact that God is watching. That God is the one that you're ultimately seeking to please. When I was in seminary, they told me over and over again, preach and teach to an audience of one. That is, don't try to make the people in the pews happy or please them, though hopefully they enjoy, you know, are served by the message. But you're, you're preaching so that God will say, yes, well done, good and faithful servant. And that it is his... Um, adulation that you're seeking. You want to be faithful to him. And so Paul is basically saying, Timothy, do your ministry in for God, because he will come and we will give an account on those last days when he appears again and his kingdom is ushered in. Your ministry will give an account for what you and how you have done it, how you have fulfilled it. For, for it is, we want to hear this when Jesus returns. Well done, good and faithful servant. And so Paul is encouraging Timothy, it's time to act, fulfill your ministry, and here's why you have a ministry, because God is the one who has done all of this, and it's, we do it for his glory. But in Timothy may be tempted to lose focus, to think it's about him, or to do it for some other reason, but he cannot lose focus. Just like we can lose focus and we can do life for many other reasons than God's glory. But when those things become our focus, instead of pleasing God, it's then that we have a problem and we need to be reminded as Timothy is reminded in our passage. And in our, it is in our passage that we are encouraged. Because God gives us the ministry, we must fulfill the ministry. And in our passage, Paul lays out the need for the ministry. He sets out the context of ministry, the context of ministry. If you look at verses 3 and 4, you'll see the context of ministry, or you might even say the need for ministry. 
Why do we need people to preach and to know the word, to be trained? And that's because, verse 3, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Paul says there is a time that is coming, and you, we would say that it's actually already here, even in Paul's day. He's saying that it'll continue to come. It's here and it will continue to come. Because we've talked about some of the things Timothy's dealt with. People are teaching that the resurrection at the end of the time has already happened. And people are, just one thing, people are lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. And so these people um, are turning away from truth, turning away from sound doctrine, and instead are pursuing passions and myths. And this is helpful in that it, enc it encourages us because we know that it's there, it'll always be there, but it's disheartening in that we, we see these are people we know and love who are chasing things that can never satisfy. We care for them and we want something better to believe the truth, to believe the gospel and be transformed by God. But it means that we, that, that we do have a ministry to fulfill, that there is this context of ministry of people who do not believe. And what are some of these myths and passions of our time? There are many, and we don't, I could spend all day and we would still not cover them all. But I, I do want to discuss a few. And one is uh, atheistic materialism. It's very common. And, and this has one import, just to believe that there is no God, that all we are is dust and particles and atoms. And what that means is that there is no God who provides meaning. You, if you want any meaning in life, you must make that meaning. You have to go, whatever you want, whatever that is, you go make it. And it's not wrong. It's fine. And then I'll find my meaning, and everybody will find their own meaning, and everything is just as fine as everything else. So, you know, find your own meaning. But this can only lead to despair because it does not line up with reality. In reality, God has made the world, and he is the one who provides its purpose and ultimate meaning. Now, it's easy to say, well, of course we don't believe in, I, I can avoid atheism and materialism, but that view is prevalent, and you will find this search for meaning in a lot of places. And then instead of recognizing the meaning God provides, they are providing their own. But also, even within the church, and I, I say church, um, those who call themselves churches or those who call themselves Christians, you can find people who say, I'm a Christian, I'm a Christian minister, who will encourage you in your passions. So if greed is your thing, if you want to be really wealthy, you will find people who call themselves Christians who will promise you great wealth, who will say to you, if you just sow a seed, that is, if you just give money to the right church or the right pastor, you will be very wealthy. 
I saw a video this week of a pastor who said that he had great wealth because he had given so much away that God owed him. Yeah. And he's a very popular guy, okay? So, if greed is your thing, you can go find it. You can accumulate these people to, to, to suit your passions. And if sexuality is your thing, you can find people who call themselves Christians who will um, allow just about any sexual activity, including premarital sex, homosexuality, and many others. Because why? God wants you to be happy. This is how he made you. And he wants you to go fulfill, you can fulfill that. But it, it, it doesn't, that's not the playbook we play by. So you can have your passions, you can fulfill them. You can accumulate teachers, which is one of the interesting things about this passage is that you have um, the, uh, having itching ears. They will accumulate for themselves teachers, plural, to suit their own passions. So as presumably everybody's got their own teachers that they like. I'll pick from this guy and this girl, you know, whomever. I, I've got them all lined up, and then they, I already believe that. They say that, therefore I, I'll follow these people, Right? instead of hearing what the Word of God says and letting our lives be conformed to it. But you have one person collecting all these teachers to, to say what they already believe. They want to justify themselves. And instead of turning, um, and, and they are turning away from listening. In verse 3, and instead of doing that, they should be turning to listen to the voice of God, as revealed in the Word of God, because He is the one who actually knows truth and has communicated it. And we know that from Romans 10, 17, that it is by hearing that faith comes, and they're turning away from listening. Now, there are many voices out there, many teachers you could choose from. The question is, are, are they... Are we being distracted? Are we losing focus on living for God's glory because of these voices? So this morning I want to ask, what are you reading? What are you watching? What are you listening to? What are you looking at on the internet? And here I mean like people who are trying to convey truth or, or something about life. What teachers have you accumulated? Are they teaching you God's word as it truly is? Or are they suiting your passions? And now, reading and listening to things and watching things are all good. But the question is, and I think this is foundational, am I letting that critique the Word of God? Or am I taking the Word of God to critique what they're saying? Because there's a lot of things we, can, we, we watch and see that are interesting or informative. Um, but you have to bring it under the Word of God. It, it, we must let the Word of God be the thing that shapes what we believe and how we live and bring what we read and watch and listen to under its authority and not the other way around. 
So I, one of the things I like doing, and my children like doing, is watching movies. And Sarah the other day said, she was telling someone else that, yeah, and he makes us answer questions after every movie, which isn't true. We don't do it every movie. But I like to, when we see a movie, to ask questions about how does this story point us towards biblical truth or to the gospel? And it could be that loving your neighbor is a good thing, right? Like, that's a good thing. Many people believe that, and we can agree with that. But, but what, and these are the questions, these are four questions, right? What is the creation narrative? What, what do they think is foundational to the world and how it's made? Sometimes that's in the story, sometimes it's not. What is always in the story is what is the problem? What's gone wrong? What do they find? Why are they all moving and acting in this movie or book? And then what's the solution? What, what is the ultimate solution they find? What makes it the problem be solved? And then finally, what is the ultimate end? What is the ultimate um, good? What does the ultimate good look like? I.e., kind of what is their end goal for everything and everyone? Some of these are clear in movies and whatnot. And, but there was a movie, uh, a cartoon animated movie that I enjoyed. And at the end, the character sacrifices himself for his friend, which is in the movie. I don't believe these people are Christians, but it's in the movie because they find it beautiful. And they should because that's the way that God made the world, that, that the love is ultimately expressed by giving of yourself, not taking from others. And so they find it beautiful, and it makes its way in. And so we can affirm that that points to some biblical truth, some, some commonality. There are many things that are, obviously we would say, aren't good or right, but again, we judge it by the Word of God. And so we must, all that we read, all the, 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 it's good to read and watch things, but are we, how are we using that? And so we, we must think biblically about life, about all of it. in order to um, find ourselves and fulfill our ministry within the context of people who need the gospel, who need the truth, who need sound doctrine. That's where we find ourselves. And we find ourselves in that context. So if we're in that context, then we have the work of ministry. The work of ministry. I mentioned there are nine imperatives. Five of them, I think, involve the work of ministry. If you, we can start at verse 2. Preach the word. Preach the word. Preaching is, and now notice it's the very first thing. Preach. What is he preaching? Is he preaching himself? No. Is he preaching Paul? No. Is he, he's preaching the word. That is the scriptures, the God-breathed scriptures, which reveal Jesus Christ and ultimately point towards his death and resurrection and how we can have life in him through faith in him. And so preaching is proclaiming God's word. It's saying what God says. And, and that is the, the basic task of, of the minister of Timothy. But it also involves reproving. Reproving is the next one. Reproving is sort of pointing to a better path. 
it's, it's, it's pointing towards what is correct. And it, it's, a, it's an, a, hey, maybe, maybe this is the better way, or this is the better thing to believe or do. Rebuking involves, this is the third thing that, that he's to do, is to rebuke. It involves showing someone that there's something they need to stop doing or believing. Something they need to stop doing or believing. Because sometimes, not all the time, but sometimes it is necessary to confront someone who is in error, whether it be in their doctrine or in their life. And you, you come to them and rebuke them. This is never outside of the preaching of the gospel and, and other things where, where we're bringing grace we never rebuke without also pointing them to the grace of Jesus Christ. But sometimes there is a need to rebuke, to say, this isn't healthy and we need to stop it. And then there's an exhorting, uh, which is the fourth thing Timothy's to do as part of his work of ministry, to exhort. To exhort involves encouragement to find the right path. I think, of, have you all ever been on a ropes course where... You're the one uh, trying to make your way on the, you know, whether it be the wall or the, the, the net or the swing. And it's not as easy as it looks when you're standing on the ground. But everyone there else is watching you, and what are they doing? They're cheering you on. They're like, hey, you can do it. You're, you're going to make it. Or, or try that. Maybe that hold will help. What about that? Maybe you can make that way. It, it's exhorting is, is encouragement to find the right path to get to the right end, the right goal. And we're all in it together. And in verse 5, so that's exhorting. In verse 5, I think there's one more. And that's do the work of an evangelist. Now, if you're like me and you read this, you think, do the work of an evangelist. And if I were to think about an evangelist today, what would I think about? I'm thinking about someone who goes around preaching the gospel, presumably to people who don't know Jesus, whether it be a small crowd or a large crowd. And I think the evangelist par excellence of our time, or at least the most well-known one probably ever, was Billy Graham, right? He would go around, preach the gospel to people so that they would become Christians. Uh, and that, that's what... that's. That's an evangelist, or that's how some people refer to an evangelist. But not in this text. Because the word evangelist just comes from the word gospel, the same root word. So evangelist is a gospel giver, right? Or a gospel sharer. <clears throat> but if you think about it, since the gospel is central to all of ministry, then every minister, and by that work, every Christian becomes an evangelist because they become gospel sharers. One commentator says this, the work of an evangelist is not some flashy specialty, but the meat and potatoes of regular pastoral instruction and spiritual oversight. The core message of Christ's death and resurrection in accordance with the scriptures must remain at the heart of all that Timothy undertakes. And so the work of ministry is the application of God's word to all of life. That is the work of ministry. 
It is proclaiming it with the purpose of encouraging others to continue in faith in Christ Jesus, as well as to call those who do not know Jesus to faith in him. And so this morning, I want to ask you, if that's the work of ministry, where do we do it? Where do you do it? Where do I do it? Where should we do it? Well, first of all, if you're married, then your first work of ministry is to your spouse. And if you're single, then it's maybe with your closest friends that you are accountable for. If you have children or grandchildren, that is your first avenue of ministry. The first place where you should be ministering towards others. It is to help them follow Christ and not their own passions or myths. But we can lose focus on this as our first place uh, to fulfill our ministry. But of course, our church can understand that it can be easy to lose that focus, which is why we have a wall out there that says parent resources. It's got a a whole host of books that uh, have been collated by Thad and Elisa to help. It's books they find helpful. And if none of those are what you're looking for, they would love to talk to you further and give guidance in this. Or you can talk to Robert or Thad or myself. We would be glad to share with you any resources that we have found helpful, for this is our first avenue of ministry. Uh, How many of y'all, y'all might be aware of Dr. James Dobson, uh, the founder of Focus on the Family. He tells a story about his father. His father was an evangelist, not like in our text, but an evangelist like Billy Graham. He would go around and share the gospel to groups of people. And apparently it was a very successful one. He was in high demand. But when uh, James was, uh, Dr. Dobson, um, was a teenager, he was apparently a little unruly and got into a lot of trouble. And his, his father was away for many uh, days or weeks at a time as he traveled doing this wonderful work, calling people to believe in Jesus. And one day, James's mother calls uh, his father and says, or her husband, James's father, says, I can't, I can't deal with James anymore. It, it's too much. I need you here. And so James's father, he's got two options. He can say, deal with it because I'm doing more important work. Or he can say, all right, I'm coming home. And he chose to come home. He came home and he quit his evangelistic ministry to spend time with his son and to disciple him as his first work of ministry. And that paid out pretty well because we see what he has gone on to do and influence many people. And he, but his father paid a price for when he wanted to go back to ministry when James had graduated and moved out of the house, he could not find work as an evangelist. So in a sense, he gave up his evangelist ministry to love on his son and minister to his son. And that's a good thing. That's, that's where we should start with our ministry. It's after that that we branch out. But we, we cannot neglect or lose focus on that avenue of ministry. But then we branch out because there is a hurting world. There are people who are turning away from the truth and turning towards myths. And we have several ministries at this church that many of you are involved. 
and some of you are involved with ministries outside of the church, but whatever that ministry, make sure it's centered on God's Word, for that is the, the source of our ministry. The, God's Word is what it tells us what we are to preach and teach. If we reprove or preach or rebuke or exhort, it should be based on God's Word, on its teachings and doctrines. And so we must bring God's Word to those who need it, first to our families and then to everyone else in our lives. And so we have a work of ministry Within the, within the context of ministry, but Paul also tells us in our passage that there is a character of ministry, a character of ministry. And so when, there, when we are ministering the Word of God to others, it is not just enough to get the content of the message correct. We must also get the, our character correct. That is, when we preach and teach against passions and myths, and instead preach the truth of God's word, it must be done in the proper manner, with the proper character. The character of the minister is never separated from the message of the minister. Paul highlights his example in 3.10 again. Uh, you, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim, my life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me. You see how many of those are, it's not just you, you know what I taught, you know all of the things I said, now go repeat those things. It's, it's so much more than that. It's his, Paul's whole life has been shared with Timothy. His character, including his love and patience and steadfastness. And in our passage, some of these imperatives that are here in the text, as well as some of the modifiers, have to do with the character of the minister. Uh, look at verse 2. I think this one, be ready in season and out of season. What do I, I think that means that, that there is no off-season for the minister. That when Robert leaves here, he doesn't just go send it up because he's not here. So I'm glad you don't do that, Robert. But. <laughs> yeah, but because no matter where he is, he is ready to proclaim the gospel. His life is proclaiming the gospel. His words are proclaiming the gospel. I, I once um, heard a pastor talk about he played softball, and this is like competitive softball with some very hard guys. And they found out he was a pastor, and he talks about how, like at practice, they'd be shagging five balls, and guys would drift over to him, right, and start asking them about their marriage or about life so that, because they knew he was a pastor, and his character reflected that. You see, there is no, it's not, he said, hey, I'm playing softball here. I'm out, this is, I'm out of season, you know. Uh, no, I'm, I'm ready all the time. And that's a character thing to always be um, ready. And same for us. To be sober-minded, Paul says in verse 5, as for you, always be sober-minded. And this means that it's not... <clears throat> It's sober-minded is not, is not like, don't ever drink alcohol. It, it's, it's pointing towards this mental clarity that provides freedom from excess, from confusion. One commentator says, he refers to this command as, keep your head 
about you. It's, it's always being mindful of what's going on, of how God's word applies to the situation. And, and to do it, not only say the right thing, but to say it with love, as Ephesians says. You know, um, speak the truth, which we hear, and we're like, yeah, let's speak the truth. But it also says, with love. But anyway, sober-minded, always ready. I wish I could skip over this next one, but I can't. It's endure suffering. I cannot tell you how much I'd rather have uh, red carpets and limousines everywhere, you know, my nice and easy life. But unfortunately, that's not how life goes. Life and ministry involves difficulty. It's not easy. But this is an encouragement to continue doing what we know is right, even when it is difficult. Paul, again, has his own stories of how he was persecuted. Did that stop him from preaching the gospel? No. Because he was willing to endure suffering. But he was only able to do that knowing that Jesus also suffered more than Paul ever could. And that Jesus is with him through all of his own suffering. And so we can never say that there is a suffering we endure that is greater than his, and there's no work of ministry we can do that is greater than what he accomplished in his ministry. That is Jesus. And so we have him with us, though, always with us, ready to walk with us, even when things are hard, so that we might endure suffering. And then this isn't a command, but it's something that colors everything else that Paul is saying here. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with what? With complete patience. Paul highlights his own patience in 3.10. And in chapter 2, verse 24, um, he highlights patience. Uh, The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but must be kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil. You see, we're patient with complete patience is knowing that what we say might be go to people who do not believe, and we have to continue with that on and on and on. Or that they may not be sanctified as fast as we would like. I mean, that's what I want for my kids, you know. Uh, it, it doesn't work that way, and so I need patience. And I've got my own uh, repenting and, and, and growing to do here. And so we, we must do um, God's ministry in God's way. Jerem Bars uh, was a seminary professor of mine, and he tells a story, and I believe it is his stepfather who <clears throat> came into the family but was really a miserable person. They could not leave his wife, Jerem's wife, in the room alone for fear of what he would say to her or that he might grope her or otherwise mistreat her. Miserable person. And yet, because he was married to his, because his stepfather was married to his mother, he wanted to honor his mother. He still showed up. He still participated in family events. He just made sure that they mitigated the, the issues. And they prayed for his stepfather. They prayed and they prayed. And this lasted 20 years. And then he came to faith in Christ. 
after 20 years of dealing with somebody. And the stories he told were awful. Just, it just was insufferable, I guess is a good word. And yet Jerome, with complete patience, dealt with the situation and prayed. And he came to faith, and he said that he was the most radical change. He was the most delightful person. But it took 20 years. That's a great story if you're telling it in one minute. But try living it for 20 years. When you're in year 10, you're like, when is this going to end? I can't deal with this anymore. That's why we have patience. Because we don't know when God's going to act. We continue on faithfully praying and proclaiming God's word. Doing God's ministry in God's way. And so God has given us a ministry. And a wonderful ministry it is. For it proclaims His Son, Jesus Christ, to a world that is following its own passions and myths. And so let us fulfill our work of ministry with the character that God wants us to do. it. If the gospel is everything, let us proclaim it in word and in deed, with our mouths and with our lives. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come before you today and thank you that you love us even though we do not deserve it. Thank you that you have given us this message of your gospel, of your grace. Now, Lord, help us to proclaim it to the world, to our family, but also to our neighbors and our friends. Help us, Lord, to see where we can be used mightily by you as we proclaim your gospel in word and deed. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.